Broadsheet Radio. It's shared history. <laughs> when life keeps you up, shared history helps you sleep. Oh no, I don't want that though. We put you to sleep. You're welcome, everyone. Or we we help you sleep at night, knowing that we are writing the wrongs of history. Or that we are rubbing them in our faces. <laughs> <laughs> Letting us all know we're not alone and realizing how fucked up his history is. Or I don't know, Natalie. Sometimes we talk about good stuff, right? It's true. Do we? we do sometimes talk about good. I actually, my topic for today, I specifically was like, I'm going to go with this one because it's only kind of a downer. Mine is uh, not a downer, but also could quite literally be one. And oh. you won't even know what that means until my topic comes up. Oh my God. The twists and the turns and the turns Ooh. and the twists. I'm on an old <laughs> roller coaster. Have you ever thought about old roller coasters and then just thought to yourself, wow, we really, we really were throwing caution to the wind. Cause you, <laughs> I, I love a wooden roller coaster. This is, this is me talking. This is coaster talk, coaster chat with Nat. Coaster chat. Coaster chat with Nat. <laughs> I love me a wooden roller coaster. They're my faves. I think the Viper at uh, Six Flags is my favorite. Six Flags uh, Great America roller coaster. However, I was recently reading a book about that takes place at the Riverview Amusement Park in Chicago, which no longer exists. It is now a Mariano's and a Jewel. And, Naturally. Uh, mm-hmm. Yep. Nature found a way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's, there's a bunch of other things, too, because it was like a really big amusement park. And we always talk to my... Um, talk to my grandparents and Justin's grandparents because they used to go to it when it was open and we're and they know that our old apartment was right down the street from it from where it used to be and and we we would talk about it and my brain just can't my brain just can't comprehend like a Coney Island-esque amusement park in the middle of north center like west lake view (laughs) no one two you look up like pictures and artistic renderings of Riverview Amusement Park and my brain can't comprehend the rides. Granted, the book yeah. that I was reading was about like a, a series of murders, of like child abduction murders that were happening. On I think it was fictional. Um, oh God! But I'm also positive that people died on those rides because they all look terrifying. Like one is just called the Blue Streak, and then there, there's a one where you know now they like do the thing where they like strap you to the walls of the thing that spins. Yes. And it's like, oh, centrifugal motion is holding me back to the... Before it was, we're just relying on the science of the... Sp- like, you oh. were, you had maybe oh. a strap you could hold on to, but you were just spinning. Oh, wait, so that's not that's not the right protocol, because we definitely have that at an amusement park in Iowa, and there's nothing to hold on to. That just- and then we would, we would, like, try to go upside down, like, slowly move our bodies upside down as it went faster... A little adrenaline junkie. Little adrenaline junk. No, it it gave me stomach aches. My follow-up <laughs> question to you being on that ride is: Was it made of wood? Because now imagine it made of wood. 
Yes. Iowa, what are we doing? I was like, we, uh, we were just throwing out all these amusement park rides. <laughs> we just dumpster dove and took them. There was, there was um, an old roller coaster that they still have. It's called the Outlaw, and it's uh, it's in like the little western part of the park, and it's all wooden, and it like, I don't like it. Not because it's like, oh my god, I'm scared and it's going to fall apart. But because I get whiplash because it's like jerking you around everywhere. And then there's this part where you go under one of the other, you know, tracks, whatever. You think you're going to hit your head. I you got your hands like up, kind of pulling them down. You can't, you can't yeah, pull yeah. your hands down at those. Oh, man. But now they have a water park and um, they serve booze there and have a lazy river, which... Like a lazy river with just a tropical boozy drink. I don't even need the tube. I'll just walk. I'll just be the old ladies that walk around the lazy river. It's glorious. Well, those old ladies are just being thrifty, you know, because at, at least in like Vegas and a lot of places, like in Vegas, you have to pay for the tube. So if you're oh, at yeah. a resort that has a lazy river, you're just, you're just walking with your, with your drink. I think, I think, um, at, at Adventureland, the one in Des Moines, it's like you, a lazy river tube is $8. And if you bring it back, they give you $5. <laughs> so they're like, you still have to pay for it, but don't steal it. We'll give you money back if you don't steal it, but not all, I don't know. It's fucking weird. Anyway. give you all the money back. It would be like uh, shopping carts at Aldi. We clearly have <laughs> a show about amusement parks, and now my brain has gone on a tangent of whether or not. I was about to say, Cass, I would go to Vegas with you, and then my brain and my liver went, mm, would you? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Can I tell you about my discovery, oh, speaking of Vegas, you can. and why you shouldn't go to Vegas with me? Um, I discovered online gambling apps. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm like, oh, my God, this is fun. But I um, have uh, thrill-seeking and impulse control behavior issues. So I'm like, I'll just throw another five down. Although odds aren't that great, but I'll probably win. And I told the Linda, this woman that I work with, I was like, oh, my God. My, my guy friend was like, hey, like, if I give you this code and you whatever, then I get 50 bucks. Like, okay, I'll do the little code thing. He does it all the time. So then I bet one thing. I was like, oh. Oh my God, this is kind of fun. I was like, Linda, look what I got. She's like, Cass, just be careful, okay? I was like, oh my gosh, I'm fine. And now I, um, Natalie, I need to borrow some money. Um, no, it's like it's not that bad. Wanting your microphone. <laughs> I, I literally only do like dollar bets randomly, but like when I win, I'm like, I need, I need more. So Two I've not lost any money or like gone for You're broke or anything, even. but, but I'm uncomfortable because I can feel myself like getting, mm -hmm. sucked you know, in. sucked in. Two things. Um, <laughs> if you develop a gambling problem, especially if it's like online or like gas station, electronic, <laughs> um, you are just... Like, we should make a bingo card of Iowa stereotypes. Oh, God. <laughs> Midwest stereotypes. And it's like, you're going to have to fill that space in. Uh, oh, shit. 
two, uh, and the prize, just so you know, the prize isn't great because I know I don't <laughs> lure you with the, with the win. The prize is bankruptcy. <laughs> I know I can win that one. <laughs> uh, two, I, I don't, I don't partake in the game. If I'm in Vegas, I'll fuck around on like a, a really cheesy slot machine. Like I'll be like, give me the Britney. Give me like the, give me the, the sex in the city, uh, <laughs> machines, whatnot. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll play like the wheel of fortune game. Cause I always think that one's fun. However, as a youth, I won all of the things, uh, and luck is wasted on the youth because I mean, it wasn't wasted because I won several concert tickets through radio call-ins and raffles. So Baxter Boys tickets, the 2000 B96 Summer B-Bash. I went to, I just want to be clear, I was 10 years old. Uh, I took my dad. as a child <laughs> weed. Uh, and I, but now as, a, as an adult, to put in perspective how my luck has slipped, my... Uh, my husband's aunt played the saran wrap, like set up the saran wrap oven mitt game uh, over the holidays. You know what that is, right? What's that? No. Where you put, maybe this will just be my discovery today. Uh, it's where you put, uh, you put a prize in the middle and you wrap it with a bunch of saran wrap and you have to, she kind of messed up because what you're supposed to do is like, you got to get the saran wrap going all different directions. There should be different pieces of saran wrap, I think. I don't think it should be one continuous piece. And... Uh, in the various layers of the saran wrap, this is a colossal waste of uh, saran wrap. But <laughs> this is not a low waste activity. The, there's You put other treats and prizes in the other layers. So like the main prize is in the center. And what you do is you, you whoever is playing, like when it's your turn to unwrap, you have to wear oven mitts. And you're wearing oven mitts and you're trying to unwrap the saran wrap. I feel like this is also a very Midwestern game. You're trying to unwrap the saran wrap and get to the center because you want the prize while yeah. the person next to you is rolling two dice. And the second they roll pairs, uh, the second they roll like duplicates, um, your turn- As soon over. as you mentioned dice, I was like, oh, this is a Midwestern game. <laughs> I feel like I'm that's going, such a Midwestern uh, thing. Uh, Yahtzee, the second you run, you the, the person next to you rolls, two, rolls a pair, they are, your turn's over. So you have to stop uh, trying to unwrap the saran wrap, pass it to them, they put this, the, the mitt, the mitts on, and it keeps going uh, around the circle until you get to the center of the thing, um, where like the, the main prize is. When we played it this this past holiday season, the smaller prizes were like packs of Swiss Miss hot chocolate, Ghirardelli chocolates, and um, and scratch offs, uh, scratchers, and Midwestern. <laughs> gotta get my scratchers. Uh, says the woman who's in an Ohio lottery commercial. <laughs> uh, but there's, get, get, get your scratchers. I, I was very good at rolling the dice. However, I like the person before me rarely had a long turn, but I got like, I think 12, I got like 10 or 12 scratchers I got out of it because that's what came out when I was un unrolling it. And of that number of scratchers, I won zero dollars or cents scratchers are a it's it's a it's a tricky thing given scratchers because if someone wins you're like fuck grandma got grandma got two or three scratchers i think and she won fifteen dollars well i mean i don't give a shit if you won fifteen dollars but if you win like fifty thousand i'm like Gah. but i mean like i didn't even win like a dollar <laughs> 
no. I don't know what that game is called. Um, it's just, it's Saran, it's Saran Wrap Times. There's a fun random thing that we'll do at my, uh, at my partner's holiday. Like we, his, one of his aunts once built a, um, oh, what's it called? It's like a, like a money booth where like you have a set amount of time and you have, you step into the booth and they, they did it with the leaf blowers and money, oh! and money flying everywhere and you yeah! whatever you can and whatever you can grab and hold on to, uh, while the time is going, you get to keep. They, they just did what I hope. That's yeah, they, awesome. they built their own. I was like, was yeah, with, with the leaf blower, that's easy. Yeah. That's amazing. Cass, we have to take an ad break. Fair enough. But we're a history podcast, so we have to infuse this interlude with some tasty, tasty facts. Okay. Oh, tasty facts. Like brewing beer using hops became a standard practice as a result of early drug laws in Bohemia. Ah, yes. The Reinheitsgebot Law of 1560. I remember it well. Now that hops are no longer a legally required ingredient in beer, welcome to the future, our friends at Herbiary have taken it upon themselves to release your taste buds from the cages of convention. They've experimented with over 200 different herbs and botanicals, building on the rich tradition and fermented folklore of hop-free brewing. Learn more about their delicious section of brews and where to find them at herbiary.com. I'm so excited. Um, and I'm... And you just can't hide it? I can't hide it because I'm yawning because I'm going to talk to you about sleep history. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Where now are that's... we? When are we? Is it past my bedtime? <laughs> so that's why I said my topic could be a downer. Like a lay downer. Lie downer. <laughs> Take your pants off and lie down. <laughs> the Midwestern cure for pretty much anything that ails you, but mostly stomach aches. <laughs> I feel like we should leave all the long pauses in this episode and just with the caveat that they're all one of us yawning because Cass is talking about sleep. Like, seriously. Um, you just said the word yawn and now I need to yawn again. Every time you think you're going to yawn, drink your coffee. <laughs> it's gone. No. Um, so I'm here to talk to you about biphasic and polyphasic sleep. Cass, you're talking about science. Nah. I, uh, once again, found my topic from an article that I read, which I'm like, thanks, articles. Guys, go read articles. They're wild. Um, but in the like middle ages in europe they practiced what they call one sleep and first sleep and second sleep so i see an article about like oh what you know what about first and second sleep and my little hobbit brain was like what about elevensies i want to i want to talk about napping so i read it and apparently the like nighttime sleep schedule of you know be up all day go to sleep at night for seven hours is very new like only within the past two maybe 300 years and then this article is wild because i was like oh it's about sleep i'm gonna read it and then the first line of it it was around 11 on 13th of April, 1699, in a small village. And then there was a murder. I was like, what the fuck are we talking about? So this 
historian, this scholar, Robert Eckert, he was doing uh, a book on the history of nighttime. I'm like, broad topic, bro. And he came upon these court documents, which I never thought about before, but he said court documents are a great uh, resource for studying history, studying cultures, because common practices that like we don't do now that were so normal, like in a court document, like you are writing down every if single thing. going through what their day was. Yeah. For in their testimony, you're writing all that shit down. Yeah. You're saying like the banal, like I got up, I got my coffee and you know, 3000 years from now, like what is coffee? What is this thing that everyone was doing in the morning? Oh, let's look into that. So a very just like throwaway line in this murder case was that the mother had just gotten up from first sleep. And then he noticed he was seeing that in a lot of other things. And he kind of discovered this first sleep, second sleep thing where people would go to bed at around 11 p.m., I think. And then they'd wake. Yeah. And that's what confused me because I would think we're in the Middle Ages where before electricity obviously in case you didn't know that the middle ages was before electricity well and so it's like you kind of have to go to bed when it gets dark because you're limited in what you can get up to because candles are more expensive okay sorry this is what it is also it's it's a bbc article so they use a 24-hour clock and it threw me Hmm. 11 11 p.m 11 p.m was when they woke up from Ah. first sleep so they'd wake up in like the middle of the night And then they'd be up for like a few hours and then they'd go back to sleep. Also, like we didn't have an 8 a.m. you know, work day. So people kind of woke up as needed. They never set alarms. Actually, did you know the invention of the clock was, or the the invention of the alarm or whatever, was a clockmaker who needed to make sure he got up to open a store on time? I love And that's mentioned in this article. It was like, ironically enough. So yeah, so they would, they'd go to sleep you know, for, you know, seven, eight o'clock, I don't know, maybe earlier than that, they'd sleep for a few hours, they'd get up in the middle of the night, and then they would say they would use this time to do like, various tasks or whatever. So they would make candles or get all the candles out, or they would stoke all the fires in the house, which I remember like watching Downton Abbey and shit and being like, man, like, you got to keep a fire going all night. It's freezing. Like, are you just going to wake up when the embers are dying and restart it? That's freezing. Well, people would already kind of be awake and then they would just redo these tasks. And then they said they practice bed sharing. So a lot of people would sleep in the same bed at once, Mm -hmm. which I think of a lot, you know, kind of like peasants. They only have like one room or whatever, but a lot of people would do this. So then they would use that time to just like chat and like catch up on their day. I think they do a lot of storytelling, which, you know, when you think of like, um, like scary stories, like this is probably where a lot of them came from. And then they said, this was also a time where people had sex. I was like, checks out, you're already in the bed together. But they like almost made it seem like that was just another kind of routine part of the day. It's like, had lunch, did my first sleep, had my coitus, had my second sleep, got up for. And I had never heard of biphasic sleeping before. And 
then I was thinking about it. I was like, well, yes, I have siestas in uh, when you said Latino second sleep. I was like, oh, like a siesta. Yeah, and and in uh, Spanish and Latino communities and Caribbean communities, like this is still a thing, and it's very much thought of as like oh, they're just like taking a nap in the middle of the day. Well, first of all, usually when they take the nap, it's in these very hot climates and it's around the time the sun is in the highest point of the day. So they're staying cool. But also, this is not just a specific culture thing. This is something that a lot of people did for thousands of years because it's better for your body. Biphasic oh God, and polyphasic sleeping. And dismantle the eight hour sleep schedule. Oh my God, let's burn it up. Let's burn up the eight hour work day. Let's burn up oh, the seven day the work week. Seven day work, the five day work week and the 40 hour work week. Let's just, let's we, fucking should burn whole, it. we should do a whole series of here's where this bullshit thing came from. Cause yeah. it's, in the, it's, I get articles about that shit all the time. Yes. Yeah. Read articles. If the more articles that are interesting to you that you read the little robots inside the internet who read your mind and hear all of your thoughts and feelings will give you yes this morning i had one about uh, a new book about um the diary of anne frank and a new uh theory about who betrayed the frank family but more specifically <gasps> because of i almost did that as my uh discovery but more specifically because of who i am as a person the article that i received was an article from the new york times about historians being like guys you shouldn't have written this book this way because this doesn't really hold water oh no but it's not about her but is it about the new york times are you behind the paywall or do you pay for it i'm behind the paywall because i can't ever read shit on there anyway it's not about that there are hacks for that. I have to remember what they are. You open up like a, a incognito. incognito that browser. doesn't always work. There's another hack for that that somebody taught me recently, and I tell. I'll, Do you I'll, know what I call? I'll remember it, and then I'll it'll be at my discovery in a future. Yes. Episode. Do you know what I call incognito windows? Uh, porn windows. <laughs> Dirty Google. <laughs> <laughs> um. No, but but so there's scientific study about pros of biphasic sleep biphasic is actually the best for you polyphasic sleeping is better for you what we do is shit it's not good what, um okay. so biphasic is this first sleep second sleep situation yes by two poly multi-pole multi-pole so like the way we do things now is we sleep for hopefully six to eight hours and then we go for whatever math is on the rest of it and and it's also this kind of imperialist capitalist like lie of well work hard like you shouldn't be sleeping and then you know they're just now we're all just little worker drones and yes. we're our bodies are falling apart and you know being part of the whole it's like capitalism yes <laughs> but also like it I was never like, I'm going to work my ass off for, for oh, work or whatever. Hustle culture? On what? You're talking about hustle culture. Hustle, hustle, hustle culture until I start acting. And then it's like, grind, 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 like never sleep, never whatever. And you couldn't convince me otherwise. Because I'd be like, well, if I work hard, like if you're sleeping and I'm awake, I'm getting something done. 
you can't change that mentality for people. Like we like, how do you dismantle that? How do you stop that? No, I'm asking. Like, how oh, can we stop um, this, Natalie? <laughs> uh, you wake up and you pour yourself a big old bowl of don't give a fuck flakes. And uh, you munch on that every morning and make that part of your regular routine. Oh, no, yeah. even just talking about a routine is hustle. <laughs> and now I'm yawning again. <laughs> <clears throat> but it's better for your body. Um, it's, you know, because the more time you're awake, it builds stress. It builds tension. You're not listening to your body. Biphasic sleeping essentially is just listening to your body. Where if you tell yourself, like, I have to be awake from this time to this time, I can't sleep in between, hopefully I'll get a few meals, like, you are putting your body in a state of turmoil, I don't know. I'm not a scientist, I'm not a historian, but there's... You are very good at sleeping. But I'm not, is the thing. Oh my gosh. It's been, you know what, and do you know what I hate to say? I've been reading before bed more and that's been knocking me out, <laughs> but I am really bad about my screen. Like I, I've been addicted to my phone as of late. It's gotten really bad. It's probably because of all the online gambling. It's a problem for me more in the morning. <laughs> if I like, look at my phone, there's a point in the middle of, uh, uh, like in the middle of 2020 where I, cause I used to get up at like five 30 in the morning and go to the gym. Uh, and mm -hmm. I was not doing that. And so there's yeah. uh, a year and a half ago that I would, I had my, f my phone plugged in across the room with my alarm mm -hmm. going off so that I had to get out of the bed before I could look at my phone because yeah. I'll just start reading those articles and scroll in the gram yes. the second I wake up and then I get <laughs> out of the bed. And this, this, the current time of year is the worst time of year for that. Cause I'm like, but it's so warm and cozy and I do not want to get up. It's so cuddly. And then just Justin gets up and lets one of the cats in. Then there's like a cat on me. And I'm like, well, now and then there's more heat and cozy. <laughs> and it's like, I can't disrupt them. No, you can't do it. It's illegal. It's not kind. Cat police. Um, I, uh, I'm like scanning through this amazing article. It's, and I'm realizing I've not talked about any of it. And there's just so much here. I don't know. Maybe this was just my discovery. This is fucking cool. So Eckert, when he like noticed his first second sleep thing, he started like looking around for it. And like he mentions it, Jeffrey Chaucer mentions it in Canterbury Tales. Um, William Baldwin's Beware the Cat, which is in 1561, a satirical book considered by some to be the first ever novel. We know it's Tale Genji, Genji. Um, centers around a man who learns to understand the language of a group of terrifying supernatural cats, one of whom, Mouse Slayer, is on trial for promiscuity. Nat, I feel like that's something you want to read. Yes. Yes. Um, first, I have so many questions. Uh, <laughs> so is this book basically about Thundercats? Yes. I'm sure it Thundercats didn't derive from that, that derived from Thundercats, I'm sure. I'm sure. So Thundercats is the source material, 100%. Yes. Beware the Cat by William Baldwin. Get on it. But this wasn't just like a British medieval thing. As Eckerch was going through studying, he found references of it in classical times, in Greek. Um, in France, the first sleep was called... Premier Somme. In Italy, it was Primo Sono. He found references of it in 
Africa, South and Southeast Asia, Australia, South America, Middle East. This was a globally practiced phenomenon. And then there was a colonial account from Rio de Janeiro, uh, who one of the colonizers described how the Tupinamba people would eat dinner after their first sleep while another explained that the local people would retire for the first sleep before 22 o'clock, 10 o'clock, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So this was practiced by, you know, smaller tribes, smaller indigenous people, like large civilizations, different sizes of cultures, different areas of cultures, different geographical, you know, all over the place. This has always been a thing. And it's like, no one knew about it. Yeah. Like, this guy obviously, like, didn't discover it, but he, like, he's like, I'm writing about nighttime. Like, he he stumbled upon it and then started, like, pointing it out and drawing it out everywhere. He was trying to figure out why we abandoned a two-sleep system and, like, why we started depending on clock time. Because usually when you woke up, you woke up, and that's when you started working. You know, there was never, like... You need to be here at 8.03 p.m. for the whatever thing. And it was the Industrial Revolution. Artificial illumination. You can have lights on at any time of the day, so you don't need to just be awake during the day. Mm-hmm. People weren't going to bed as late anymore. They would go to bed early, but still wake up at the same time. So he thinks maybe that made their sleep deeper because it was compressed, and so maybe that allowed you to go farther through the day where if you do kind of do that little like 20 minute cat nap throughout the day you know it's you feel better and more refreshed than there's one long sleep and then another he said another major side effect was a change in attitudes we quickly began shaming those who oversleep and developed a preoccupation with the link between waking up early and being productive oh yeah so that goes back to the whole capitalist hustle thing. I kind of love, uh, if you ever like, I don't know who does it, if it's like GQ or Wired or Van, I think it's Vanity Fair where they do like the everything I do in a day for different celebrities. And it's mm-hmm. sometimes very, very refreshing because I like that they're not presented as like, here's a hashtag goals routine, but that it's just yeah. like, here's what this person does. And you can't watch it or to listen to it without acknowledging the fact that this person has, like, personal assistants who are mm-hmm. doing their grocery shopping for them, do it, like, picking up their dry cleaners, picking up – Yeah. Uh, and and, take, and answering emails. So it's like I started w- watching one the other day that was for Anthony Porofsky, and it was like – he's. It was interesting because his schedule is like, I do these things and it's because it's like, this makes me feel better and makes me more productive. And he gets up at a reasonable hour, but he talks about how many times he hits news. And the first time he talks about work, he's like, by this point, my assistant so-and-so has been working probably for three hours. And so she will call me or has sent me an email with like, hey, here are priority things you need to do. And I do mm-hmm. those things. And I'm like, yeah, if I didn't, if somebody else is answering your emails and like fielding 80% of yeah. your work, but it's just interesting. Yeah. I hate, hate I like the when... ones where it's like, this is what Bill Gates does every morning. Yeah. I like when 
c celebrities or wealthy people or people who get on those like let me t talk you through my day when they talk about um their assistants who literally hold their hand through the day or uh nannies and childcare who they're like we are so who was it like i think amy poehler or something like mentioned in in Honestly, I think it was an acceptance speech or something, but she was talking about her success and she brought up her nanny. She's like, we have an amazing nanny who takes care of my kids and makes it so that I can do all of these things and make sure that my kids are happy and healthy and whatnot. And fucking yeah, yeah. thank them because yeah, you are doing really cool things and you have the privilege that you can afford that. And also they're doing real good work for your kids. I don't know. Let's stop making it seem like people are doing all these amazing things or doing it by themselves. Yeah. Let's let's cut that out. <laughs> Except for me. I do everything by myself and no one helps me. And Natalie never has to remind me about anything. Never. <laughs> we don't have a joint calendar. <laughs> why would we why who uses calendars? I don't Natalie doesn't just put things on her on my calendar that I'm like, oh, okay. I have this on here now. I don't have five separate email addresses and four Google calendars so that I can <laughs> things color coded easily. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And then, and then it goes into, you know, he talks about, it's interesting because talking about the history of sleep, like you can talk about what we do, like how we sleep now. And so he as a historian who's supposed to be, you know, objective and stuff. He said like, I'll wake up in the middle of the night and this happens for a lot of people, you know, people with insomnia and then we get anxious about it. Like we're not supposed to be awake now. And how am I going to get through my day? And he said, it makes me feel less anxious knowing that our bodies have been doing this for millennia. So maybe it's just me naturally being like, yo, be up now instead of something being fundamentally wrong with you. If you can't sleep during the night, nothing's wrong with you. Something's wrong with, um, your schedule schedule um but robert yeah robert eckert's book at day's close the history of nighttime um i i'm interested to read it because nighttime that's a lot of time mm -hmm. at night and like clearly how things have changed so much and like is it just about sleep is it about like obviously he talks about this like this murder and he talks about the science of it he talks about you know, like one mentions like, oh, people who were lucky enough to lay on a mattress or we're safer now at night because we're not worrying about being murdered or being, you know, having rats bite at us and stuff. So I'm curious to see what all he covers in that book. Yeah, because like you said, the history of nighttime, broad topic, bro. Broad. Broad topic. Natalie, there comes a time in every episode where I need to talk to you about Iowa. Wait. Is this a new segment? No, it's an ad for our sponsor, Raygun, who I love for being a wonderful business and for providing me with a regular excuse to bring up Iowa. As if you needed one. <laughs> right. Raygun is the greatest store in the universe, hands down. They're headquartered in the greatest state in the universe. Okay, okay. They also have other locations, including one in the best city in the universe, in Chicago. True. I guess you could say Raygun brings us together. Raygun kind of brings everyone together. True again. From home goods and paper products to their signature apparel, Raygun is all about good vibes, great laughs, and kind of just not being a shitty person. Yup. 
and they regularly collaborate with charities and special causes on special runs of products, and 15 to 30% of their net profits go to a variety of nonprofit organizations every year. And they sponsor this really dope history podcast I love. Right? So don't be a shitty person. Check them out at their stores across the Midwest or online at raygunsite.com. Use promo code SHARIALATER to save on your next order. Um, well, I'm going to pivot then, my friend, to making pivot feel let's I'm going to make everyone feel bad for not doing enough after we just talked about how. OK, <laughs> no, 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 because I just I want to talk very briefly about someone who I have just met through the Internet and articles. That is one Wangari Mathai. So <gasps> when are we? Where are we? Uh, mostly we are going to be in uh kenya in the 70s through the early aughts that is mostly when and where we're going to be but wangari mathai was the first african woman to win a nobel prize i to receive the nobel peace prize so she's i'll just like give you the cliff notes of of before she starts getting down to work because she's kind of always getting down to work (laughs) so she comes to america for college and then she goes back and she's she's the first woman in africa in like west and central africa to receive a doctorate to receive her phd so she's just like i'm gonna be all of these firsts and her undergraduate she and I think her master's degree because she gets she goes to grad school in the United States as well. She was she's in biology, which comes into play because what her Nobel Peace Prize is for is for her contribution to the environment and sustainability. Um, she's like an activist throughout her life, but I want to talk about the grassroots roots movement um, that she started to counter deforestation and the degradation of the environment because she starts this this organization called the Green Belt Movement in 1977, I think, and still very relevant. We don't think about a lot of people worrying about the government in 1977, or sorry, <laughs> people worrying about the environment in 1977. I was like, we always worry we about the government. We always be worrying about <laughs> uh, but. So in that in that sense, like Wingari Mathai is kind of like ahead of her time. And there's this really great interview that I read the transcript of it, but it's also a podcast that I I'll post a link to. It's a podcast called On Being with Krista Tippett. And she tells this anecdote because she's talking about kind of her earliest exposure to the importance of trees. And she tells this story about when she was a little girl, she had to go, she was going to go correct, collect like bark or lumber for a fire or whatnot. And her mother is like, okay, but you never cut down the fig tree. And she said, I asked her why. And she told me that is a tree of God. We don't cut it. We don't burn it. We don't use it. They live for as long as they can. And they fall down. They fall on their own when they are too old. And so the thing about the fig tree is that because they didn't cut them down because they were, and at this point when she's growing up, like her her people are already Christians by the time she's growing up, but she, but this fig tree thing had stayed at least among her family of the importance of a fig tree. And if you look at, I'm going to get all sciencey again. 
if you look at the fig tree and the fact that they let them grow because they worshipped under them, they saw them as sacred trees, the trees became larger. And because they were never cut, they provided stabilization for the land. So they protected people, quite literally protected people from landslides. They protected, uh, they both contributed to the streams in the area because of the way that their roots kind of broke up uh, the underground rock. They, they just lasted longer. They protected, they kept landslides from happening. They kept streams alive. They kept springs alive. And so in this interview, Wangari is talking about these this is like an early recollection of her, of, of how kind of early the importance of the trees and plants and forests were kind of embedded in her upbringing. Um, and I just think it's an interesting, an interesting anecdote because it is also just like, it's both a, it's both a cultural thing of, of these trees were, were considered sacred and also they literally protected the people <laughs> for no, yeah. for no mystical reasons, just, literally the existence of these trees dotting the landscape yeah. protected the people who worshipped the trees and kept the trees alive. So it's like becomes this like very kind of symbiotic tree love relationship. But the That's beautiful. Yeah. So in the in the seventies she starts the Greenbelt movement and the what the Greenbelt movement does is they incentivized reforestation so they they it was everything was not just like hey we need to protect these lands it was we need to resurrect these lands and also we want to stimulate the economy we want to give people more skills so that they can pull themselves out of poverty we don't just want to like hand out things we want aid that that kind of keeps going um Mm. there's another interview with her where she talks about like She's, she talks about how if you just walk into a place and tell people they have to do a thing this way and you don't really explain why and you don't give them the skills or the knowledge to understand why and see how they benefit from it, they're going to do what you say you need to do while you're there so yeah. they can receive the aid. And then when you leave, they, like there's no promise that they're going to keep doing that thing. Yeah. And And she's like, what touches me is how many how many former volunteers or like beneficiaries of the movement actually like developed continuing skills and continued mm. to plant trees and whatnot on and on and on af- like at, well after I was in contact with them in any way. So yeah. what the green, what the green belt movement would do is that they would teach and, ins- and pay uh, a small amount for farmers to grow seedlings so farmers would grow seedlings. They would they would give uh, it created jobs for women. They like taught women about seedlings and how to take care of them. They basically would like pack these bags with soil, and then they you just line up a bunch of like bags of soil that all have a seed in it. We're starting little tree seedlings, little saplings, and then they would. I think she said that it was something like. It's not just put the tree in the ground, here you go, here's money. It was, if mm-hmm. you can keep this tree alive, uh, we will reward you with a token of our appreciation. Because they couldn't, especially at the beginning, afford to pay them a lot. But they're just yeah. trying to create this like base level movement of keeping these trees alive and incentivizing people to do so. And then also they would mm-hmm. teach their volunteers other things. 
uh, of other ways to invest the the funds that they were given to keep the trees alive like some folks would then use that money to buy more trees or to like get more mm. seeds to plant more trees and so it just kind of became uh this this cycle of instead of just going in and planting a bunch of trees themselves the organization putting the power to do that in the hands of the farmers and then rewarding them for doing it some of these folks would take the money and then either buy more trees or um they taught a lot of their volunteers kind of how to keep bees and so mm -hmm. then those people have invested the money from the trees in this in like beehives and bee houses or whatnot and the equipment to do that and so now they're keeping bees and the bees are producing honey and then they can sell that honey and so they're literally pulling people out of poverty by giving them these skills and teaching them how to reinvest in themselves um with with what money they earn because she talks about she talks about how uh she talks about how the cycle of poverty and how poverty uh, affects the landscape and the environment. Because she she's like, if you are if you are deeply poor, you do not you're not thinking about tomorrow. You don't care about the environment because you're gonna. There's one tree in your village. You're gonna cut down that tree to cook mm -hmm. what might be your last meal. You're not thinking further than I need that I need that tree to keep make this fire to cook this food to survive today and mm -hmm. so you're not thinking further out than that that's what's so frustrating about people who people with money and who are able to plan for tomorrow not even for five ten years from now but for tomorrow like well why don't they just you know invest, why don't they use their money wiser it's like they they can't yeah you know if you only have enough for and oh or oh i fucking hate the like oh you're a homeless you don't have any money why are you why are you so overweight or whatever because all i can eat is mcdonald's because all i can afford today is a five dollar happy meal you know mm -hmm. that's why fast food and fast pro all that stuff all that like quick and easy made is not good for you but it's affordable yeah yeah and so you're, you're not thinking about the fact that, oh, if I have more trees, uh, I have more wood, I can plant trees that like I have that have edible components like you're not you're not, that will help me in a year or two. From no, because now. You're just like, I need to eat food to survive now. So to do that, yes. I need to, to do this. Yeah. Um, and in doing so, like, are accidentally poisoning the water in the area because this like springs are drying up or or are just like muddy and and gross because mm -hmm. there aren't trees to like protect them from landslides and to protect them from uh other stuff so the yeah the first the first event of the green belt movement is just was just about her encouraging the women of kenya to plant tree nurseries throughout the country and and then to pay stipends for farmers to then plant and keep those trees alive elsewhere once the seedlings were moved but it was also like revolutionary because she's like mobilizing the women like african women to not only work get paid learn new skills but to also be working for sustainable development um, that does not surprise me at all yeah. <laughs> Women working together to get shit done. Yeah, no. for the benefit, for the betterment of literally the whole world. 
because other people are fucking up. <laughs> but that's like that was like a core tenet of the of like the green belt movement. A lot of her other activism was uh, women's women's rights. I think I read something that when she so when she went back to Africa uh, to earn her PhD in Nairobi, I think she got like some of her like first activism and her first like troublemaking was basically trying to like create like a like a faculty type union or or something to kind of leverage for better pay of like the women and uh also because she was like one of the only female teachers but for uh i just like that she immediately is like oh uh to get this done we need to be a formalized union um for better treatment so we're gonna do this and that's the only way that we can leverage power her whole her whole thing is like i understand that the government is like a tree and most of the power is up at the top but you can't affect you can't affect that you can't you can't just like walk into that and start making decisions you have to without the support of the base of the tree yeah i love i feel like she was the kid who's like gathering her brothers and sisters it's like if we work together we don't have to clean the house and we can stand up to mom and dad. There's more of us. <laughs> she can, we can do it. She, she just started unionizing everything all the time, except she wouldn't like not clean the house probably. Cause it sounds like she likes to get shit done, but let's unionize everything. I love that. So the green belt movement evolves uh, and establishes a pan-African green belt network so it expands kind of outside of of kind of Kenya where it where it started and she gets more involved in like politics and whatnot she's and she's always been living that hashtag activist life and I want to talk about when she when she gets arrested <gasps> she gets arrested She's planting all these trees across Kenya. She's alleviating power poverty. She's mobilizing Kenyans. She's basically she's credited with planting like more than thirty for being indirectly but directly responsible with planting more than like thirty million trees. She inspires the United Nations to launch a campaign that then leads to the planting of like eleven billion trees worldwide. Eleven, 11 billion billion trees fuck off more than there's they credit more than like 900,000 Kenyan women benefiting from her tree campaign planting campaign by selling seedlings for reforestation she runs for office a couple of times before she is actually elected for everything for everything, for everything. no for anything so then in 2001 because she's pushing for reforestation we do not want to lose public forest land. We do not want to lose forests. So in 2001, the government plans to take public forest land away to give it to the government supporters to build this, like, I don't know, apartment building or something. I don't remember what, what the development project was. It's this large development project. And yeah, she's like, hell no. I have not worked this hard. <laughs> To plant these trees for you to take this land and plow it down bulldoze everything pave paradise and put up a parking lot no 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 so she so she leads like a protest against it and is arrested and jailed i think this is actually the second time that she's arrested she's arrested for protesting this development she's released without being charged uh, from from the second arrest, at least, 
she's just constantly being like she's like borderline tying herself to trees but also collecting petitions and educating other people on why like this these developments are no bueno and should be stopped she does all this before her eventual election to to parliament when she wins i think she's uh, the can a candidate of the National Rainbow Coalition, and the in dis, in twenty in sorry in two thousand two the Rainbow Coalition finally defeats the ruling party in Kenya, which is the Kenya African National Union, um, and and she wins in her Tetu con- constituency with ninety eight percent of the vote, so dang an overwhelming win, and they of course appoint her as the assistant minister in the Ministry for Environment and Natural Resources. So she does ultimately end up serving in politics. Uh, she founds the the Mazagira Green Party of Kenya uh, while, like, shortly after having won uh, as part of the National Rainbow Coalition. And that party is like, there's a federation of green parties of Africa and global greens. I don't necessarily, I don't understand government, everyone. But she she for she founds the basically the Green Party of Kenya, and helps other candidates run on a platform of conservation similar to everything that she embodied with the Green Belt Monument Green Belt Movement. So this is all early two thousands. Two thousand four is when she wins her Nobel Peace Prize, and she is the first African woman to win the prestigious award. There's and because it's two thousand four, we got footage of of her ceremony. Looked <gasps> amazing. Not that it's about that, but girl look good. And it's 2004, and it's the first African woman to win the Nobel Peace Prize. In a statement, uh, in a statement from the Norwegian Nobel Committee announcing her as the 2004 Nobel Peace Prize winner, uh, there it says the following. Uh, Mathai stood up courageously against the former oppressive regime in Kenya. Her unique forms of action have contributed to drawing attention to political oppression nationally and internationally. She has served as an inspiration for many in the fight for democratic rights and especially encouraged women to better their situation. So not even they're like, we're not even just talking about the trees and the impact of that on everyone's day to day life in Africa and Kenya, and also trees help everybody. So worldwide, we're just focusing. Here's we're giving you this peace prize for your contribution for like democracy and peace, just, in addition to just, just the trees. Literally everything you've done, but we're gonna just combine it all into this one medal. Here you go. Oh my gosh, I'm looking at a picture of her accepting the peace prize. And she's so happy. Yep. I mean, she should be. She worked fucking she, ass she, off. Uh, oh, I want to be friends with her. I, uh, I'm sorry to tell you that she is no longer with us. <gasps> she passed in 2011, I think. Um, fair, fairly young, like low 70s. I think she was like maybe 71, 72. You're about to say low, low 70s. Low 70s. Uh, she Body temperature dropped real low, low 70. Um, yeah. And she like survived like oh. perceived assassination attempts and uh, 
I mean, that's how you know you've made yeah. it. There was, uh, oh, this is, okay. I found, I found the initial arrest because, because I want, I wanted, there was a, she, after her, uh, an initial arrest, she like barricaded herself in her home. Um, and that's, that's when she, because there was like a list basically of like potential assassination situations and the police had to cut through the bars that she had installed on her own windows to protect herself from what she perceived as a potential assassination threat. And the police surrounded her house, seized her house, cut through the bars she put up and then arrested her. Oh my God. Uh, She's like, y'all, I'm trying to like not be assassinated. And you guys are coming in here to arrest me among other pro-democracy activists. This is what they're talking about. We're actually talking about the uh, oppressive regime in Kenya at the time. Because she was arrested for charging, uh, for spreading malicious rumors, uh, sedition, and and treason. And she was in jail for a day and a half. That was, that was. Treason? She's like, no, 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 I'm spreading trees. I'm spreading trees. I'm spreading trees. This is all just a big misunderstanding, you guys. let's go spread some trees, son. That's what I said. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, people listen. But I just, I love any well, woman who is called by people in power, uh, quote unquote, mad woman or a threat to the order and security of the country, because it usually in, in, in environments where there is an oppressive regime in power, the second you point at someone and say, well, they're, they're, they're mad, they're a threat to order. I, they, they said the, the Chicago police department said the same thing about Lucy Parsons. They were like, Wow, what yeah. a powder keg of of disaster! Wherever she goes, chaos spreads, and it's like, mm, if you're chaos yeah. for whom? Is it just that she's putting like a little bit of wrinkle in your plans by like empowering your evil plans, empowering people to rise uh to rise above their the poverty that they were maybe born into or fell into because of um you and your decisions? Nah, that's not it. Oh. So th- I'm basically here to tell you that the Lorax was a black woman and she spoke for the trees. And I don't think, again, anyone would nope. be surprised. She, I, I point out the Nobel Peace Prize, but she's she won. Obviously, she was she was awarded many international awards, but the Kenyan government did never ever uh, appreciated her work. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> she won like the Hunger Projects, like Africa Prize. She won the uh the the goldman environmental prize she wins the nobel peace prize and kenya's like no we're still not sure about her though (laughs) she planted the seeds for the green party in africa in kenya trees son yeah just spread some trees spread some trees son take a nap and spread some trees that's the that's our message for today all so much healthier if we allowed ourselves oh my to God. just relax and take a nap, sleep when your body sleep when your body tells you you need sleep, plant a tree. Think of all that oxygen. Oh, that makes me sleepy just thinking about it. It doesn't make me <laughs> sleepy thinking about it because my lungs would be full of clean, fresh air. Uh, yeah. Sometimes you know you get sleepy if there's a lack of oxygen. <laughs> oh. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. big sleep. Um, Natalie, thank you for um, bringing this treasonous hero um, 
to my brain and my heart. Uh, everyone, go drink a glass of water. Go plant some seeds. Um, go just like listen to your body. Your body, um, and also happy. listen to the body of planet Earth that is crying yeah. out for a nap themselves. <laughs> um. Natalie, I'm sure we'll have some great pictures. Uh, where can we find Oh, you those? can find pictures uh, and all sorts of social media things on our Instagram and Twitter at SharedPod. I want to take this moment because I know that I'm going to post a couple of great sources and little, little video clips and stories about Wingari on the old YouTube. So I'm going to take this moment to remind everybody that we have a YouTube channel, Shared History Podcast. Just search it on YouTube. You'll find us. Uh, where we have playlists for each season of things that we referenced, whether they were relevant to our projects or, or our, our topics or are just silly, dumb shit that came up. So there, which is half of the things yes. we talk about. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, if you have any questions, corrections or suggestions about anything we talked about today, uh, feel free to drop us an email at shared, shared history podcast at gmail.com. Um, we welcome your suggestions. If you have something you want us to talk about, we'll do it. We listen Cass to can't, people. Can, can't rely exclusively on the articles that her Google Now feed sends her. She can't. <laughs> because you guys, the little, the little robots in my computer are listening to me and they're only sending me things about dogs and dog videos and new money new ways to waste money on my dog so i'm running out money? of pertinent articles <laughs> well that too yes that's why <laughs> she's developed a gambling problem <laughs> i gotta pay for this pay puppy for somehow pup. listeners as always we love you and until next time share you later Broadsheet Radio.